was very high. Our plans weren't always logical. In case our house caught on fire, for example, I was supposed to grab my teddy bear and our dog, Madge, stuff them into a pillow, and throw them out the window. My sister was in charge of rescuing the cat and the Star Wars action figures. Next, we'd throw one of our mattresses out the window and then jump out the window and land on the mattress. This wasn't the soundest approach, considering that there was a perfectly good fire escape ladder in the hall closet upstairs. But we had never used that ladder, so we weren't sure how it worked. In fact, my mom would mention at least once or twice a year that we really needed to test that fire escape ladder. Just spotting the box in the closet gave me a sinking feeling inside. A picture on the front of it showed a voluptuous woman in a tiny nightgown lightly stepping down a chain ladder amid a raging fire. She bore an uncanny resemblance to Farrah Fawcett and not only looked calm but had a slight smile on her face as red and orange flames licked at the hem of her nightie. This image of poise in the face of adversity struck me as utterly fantastical. My sister and I knew better than to put our faith in such a traditional, accepted means of rescue. The people who did that in the movies exited calmly with the crowd, trusted the lifeboats, followed the posted signs, were always the ones to perish first. Only a small band of survivors willing to plot out their own escape route and battle their way through untold mishaps had any hope of making it out alive. We never ran our emergency drills by my mom, who might have liked to know that if there was a fire, her two daughters would die struggling to shove a mattress out the window. But it seemed more reassuring to have a plan that our parents weren't in on, maybe because we didn't always trust their judgment under duress. Childhood is a wild, unpredictable ride, whether your parents are good drivers or not, and our parents alternated between puttering along cautiously and careening all over the road, shouting at each other as they swerved and fishtailed through uncharted territory. The stakes always felt unnervingly high, but even though we could crash at any second, we still enjoyed the scenery together. Some spirit of recklessness and longing attracted my parents to each other, and we were enlisted in their strange bond. We echoed their hot-headed tirades, we matched their loud, cackling laughter, we soaked in their ambient melancholy. They were young and opinionated and stubborn and overwhelmed by violent emotions. We were caught in their undertow. Even my earliest memories are vibrant and sweet and vaguely menacing. A loud fight, a silly song, a made-up game, an hour of sullen silence, a walk among the fireflies at twilight. We loved our king and queen, but their kingdom was an untamed and volatile place. And then there was the larger world outside, with its fear-mongering teachers and anxious bullies, its fickle boys and sadistic cheerleading coaches and bad bosses and disapproving friends and indifferent but watchful strangers. The claustrophobia of our odd little gang of five gave way to a wider universe that was even more bewildering. 
Maybe we grew up during a particularly reckless decade when people drove fast in cars without functioning seatbelts and let their dogs run free through the neighborhood as a pack chasing cars and terrorizing cats. Or maybe my mom and dad were particularly invested in making us aware of just how cruel and unforgiving the world could be. Their blustery jokes and self-assured swagger belied a deeply pessimistic dark view in which people were assumed to be selfish or unjust or careless or deluded or all of the above. But this isn't the story of my parents' failures or how the world beat me up or let me down. Instead, I chart my trajectory from expecting way too much, from my parents, from the world, from myself, to then, later, as a coping strategy, expecting way too little.